I've pondered many times what it would have been like for uh, Mary, uh, Adam and Eve um, to be in a perfect relationship with the Lord and one second have it stripped away the, uh, the destructiveness that they must have felt to have it gone. I can't, I can't even imagine what that would be like. And then on top of that, to experience the curse, which helped them to see that for some period of time, this is what life is going to be like. So what a, what a pleasant surprise, right in the middle of the curse, to have a line, a little statement, when God says to Mary, your seed, your son, is going to destroy this enemy and reverse this whole process going to crush his head, actually. That begins a, a journey. I call it the quest for the son throughout the Bible, where they began to wonder, is this the son? Is this the one? Can you imagine her excitement when she found out she was pregnant? In fact, in Genesis 4, she starts it off by saying, I have given birth to a son with the help of Yahweh. Can you imagine the excitement to, to be, have that perfect, harmonious relationship with God and have it all stripped away and then to find out you're pregnant and you have a son. Here he is. Here's the one. The one that's going to reverse this mess and put us back into that relationship. What a sorrow. What a, what a sadness. What a further destruction it was when her oldest son, perhaps who she had all of her hopes and dreams in, killed the second son. And thus begins only son after son after son, all broken and fallen and sinful, like the ones before. I wonder if they got tired and weary through the exile. I wonder if they got tired and weary during the centuries when the Lord didn't speak and they had to wait. And the sun never came. The sun never came. If you have your bulletins, open up, turn to the back page. There's some things that are very important this week. I know this is a busy week for you. Yesterday, I was at Park Meadows with two of my granddaughters. And um, about 25, 30 years ago, something like that, when, my, when we were living in Germany as missionaries, my, uh, I had to go Christmas shopping, and we were brand new, living in a foreign culture, and I didn't have a lot of courage. And um, so I took my four-year-old daughter with me. I figured that would boost my courage. See, she's blue-eyed, left-hand, and... and uh, an extrovert like I am. So everybody else in the family is weird, but the two of us get along really well. So we started when she was four, and that tradition continued on for 20 years. And then she went and got married. Wow. Further, worse than that, she moved to Boston. So I, she's not even there anymore. So the next year, the 21st year, I thought, well, that one am I going to do? I've done this every Saturday, the last Saturday before Christmas for 20 years. So I thought, hey, I have a granddaughter. So I called her up. She lives in Littleton. 
And I said, you want to go? Yeah. So we had a great time. So now that tradition has grown, and pretty soon I have two granddaughters that live up here. So I went yesterday with my two granddaughters who are 11 and 12. The younger ones are too small, so the three of us went. And um, so you guys, I took them out to breakfast. You guys want some coffee? Mom doesn't allow us to have Do you see mom here? And that started the whole day of, can we have a donut? Let's go find a donut. Can we go to Starbucks? Yep. What do you guys want? I'll get what you have. Can we have ice cream? Sure, it's a Dairy Queen right over here. Can we try on these dresses? You can try whatever you want. No mom and dad around. It's priceless. So much fun. We did buy presents while we were there, by the way. But we had so much fun just enjoying the 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 cheer and the the laughter. It's one of those times in the year when people are excited. Most people are excited about life, right? And uh, we got to see it. We got to experience it. Holding hands, sitting next to each other, just having a blast. That's what Christmas should be about, right? I know not everybody experiences that. We'll pray for them in just a moment. But that's what Christmas is about, celebration. For those of us who are believers, we look forward to the Lord's return. We, Christmas is one of those times where we have just a taste, just a taste of what's coming. If you look on the back, in the middle of all this busyness, I just want to remind you, upper left-hand corner, two Christmas Eve services, 4 and 6 p.m. If you want to sit here, get here early, because this fills up really fast. This will be 100% full in here. And remember, this is a great time of the year. You can say to any of your friends, neighbors, if you're looking for a place to worship, come to the candlelight service at DCC. I've been saying that to everybody. And, uh, and people go, oh, what time is it? What do you do there? Because a lot of people don't know. And so it's a great time. Below that, on Sunday, December 29th, we have the end of year celebration. This is when half the people are gone. And so we have one time when we get together as a church. And we have a chance to sing and worship and to pass a mic around and say, where did you see the Lord this year? Where was he in your lives? And we get to celebrate together what God has done throughout the year. And then on the right-hand side this afternoon, the Festival of Lessons and Carols, right there, this afternoon at 4.30. This is a more of an ecumenical service. It's worth coming to. There's a bunch of us from all the different churches getting together and participating and leading it. So if you're, not, if you're around this afternoon, come to that. Okay, before we jump back into the story, <clears throat> let's stop and pray. Let's pray for our people. I didn't write the list of names down. Uh, you're, if you're here last Sunday or the Sunday before, you saw we have eight or nine that I brought to your attention. We have a, several people that you don't know about. Uh, we have people that, some that are discouraged, are experiencing loss. Some have lost um, family members, friends. And so I just want to stop and pray because they're part of our community, aren't they? They're part of us. We know them. Heather Wood, Heather and Dan were here. Sunday, John Hardy was here, both struggling with cancer. Priscilla Flanders was here, struggling with cancer. Um, and we all, know, we all know friends at this time of year that are struggling. And so they're part of us. They're our friends, they're our loved ones, they're people that we know. And so let's just stop and pause in the middle of this wonderful time and lift those people up. Father, we do lift up these friends and neighbors and uh, people that we know people that we love deeply. Lord, some of them are struggling with life. 
wondering if their life is going to continue after the cancer diagnosis. Others recently lost somebody close to them. Father, I them. I pray, Lord, during these during these hard times that you would show yourself to them in new and fresh ways and that that grace, which is so elusive to us, would appear in their lives in very real ways. But Lord, as a church, we're just asking you because they're important to us to be strong in their lives, to help them. Thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today is the fourth Sunday of Advent, uh, the final one read. You heard Luke 1 read, and like all of the other surprises, there are many uh, many surprises in the story. We have the clues, and the children uh, know that you're sheep. Remember what the characteristic of sheep are? Is that they're very unintelligent? That's all of you. It's okay to laugh. You can laugh louder than that. The first service laughed and laughed and laughed. I called them sheep, and I didn't have to explain it to them. And they got it. But the children know that, and so they're providing you clues. We got a donkey here. We got sandals. No room at the end. We got a little caress here, a little nativity set. Who are the characters today? Who said that? Yeah, see, there you go again. Couldn't even let the adults figure it out. Mary and Joseph, the first Sunday of Advent, who did we, who did we talk about? The announcers, the angels and shepherds. Second Sunday, the animals. Third Sunday's last Sunday, the Magi, the wise men. Today is Mary and Joseph. And this story, all throughout in Luke here, it, it's got a lot of surprises. So let's look at the very first surprise. And in uh, just before the birth of Jesus foretold in verse 23, you have Zechariah. He's a father of John the Baptist. He's in the temple and um, he is doing his his monthly duty, lighting the incense and all that stuff. And so he wasn't in there very long. They didn't go in there and hang out. They went in there, lit it and came out. Well, he didn't come back out. And everybody's going, uh, what's wrong? Did he die? Did something happen? They knew something was up. So he comes out and he can't speak. So when they, uh, right in the middle of verse 22, when they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, because they said he couldn't speak to them, he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife and Elizabeth, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Geographically, where are we right here? We're in Jerusalem. We're at the temple. All of a sudden, in one sentence, we move from the temple, sacred space, to unknown space. That's the first surprise. And that's a big surprise in this culture. You see, um, right after that, uh, we're told that Gabriel goes to Nazareth in the the town of, in the uh, area of Galilee, a town in Galilee. So the very first surprise is Luke contrasts the temple with Nazareth. We've moved from sacred space to an unknown place. The fact that it's qualified here, a town in Galilee, tells us that uh, it was an obscure place. And so he had to qualify where this place was so that the people would know that we're reading this. Nazareth is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in the intertestamental literature. Josephus doesn't mention it. It's not mentioned in any of the rabbinic literature. It really was an unknown place. Archaeology has revealed that it was a small hamlet 
uh, with a few earthen dwellings had no importance, none whatsoever. Nothing significant about this town. At the most, it probably had 500 people at its greatest point. This is a small, obscure town. Now, I asked you last week if God called you up and said, you're now the imperial event planner and you get to plan the coming of the king. Is that where you'd pick? Is that where you'd pick for the announcement to occur and then eventually the birth right down the road? An obscure place? Probably not. One of the things I've learned throughout my Christian life, which is getting longer now, I look back on the number of prayers that God has answered, and I'm astounded at the number of times He answers my prayer, but nothing like what I prayed. It's amazing to me. Oh, He answers it. He finds a way to answer it. But it's very different than what I expected. And so here we have this little town, very obscure. Well, this sets up the second surprise in the story, and that is when you look at the cultural context in which this occurs, this is especially important. The story for us, we've heard it so many times, it's often, it's easy for us to lose the, the surprise in it, but the surprises are there. The story sets up an incredible contrast with the worldview of the time. There were many ideas in the ancient Near East floating around in their myths, their sagas, their stories, many ideas of the gods chasing and cohabiting with women. That was not an uncommon thinking. In fact, the the heroes, the founders of the religious cults, the important people, were believed to have been conceived in extraordinary circumstances in order to highlight their importance. Wow, we don't have any of that, do we? None of it at all. Mary was not chased by God. God does not with her. It's just the opposite. He's actually very gentle with her and encourages her not to be afraid. Something that's repeated all throughout Scripture with God's people. Because whenever God appears, it's terrifying. So he has to say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Additionally, she doesn't come from a position of power, influence, Any of that, she comes from a position of humility and poverty. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, verse 24, when they present him at the temple, it says, uh, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping what is said in the law. So they offered a pair of doves and two pigeons. They couldn't even afford a lamb. That clause in the law was there to allow for people that were very, very poor. Very poor. So this is a surprise because what the world thought of greatness is very different than what God thought of greatness. Mary's pregnancy and Jesus' birth both occurred in very humble circumstances. This sets us up for the third surprise in the story. God approaches Mary in a very unique manner. It's designed to increase her faith and demonstrate his love for her, while at the same time he terrifies her. So Gabriel begins by telling her that she is highly favored. Luke one twenty eight. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Now, you've heard me say this before. This is my Job. You know what do you say to Satan? Have you considered my servant Job, most faithful man on the earth? I've said, I don't get to say it this way too many times more. But I, the last thing I want is for God to say, have you considered Jim, 
my servant? No, I wanted to say, have you considered Mark? My servant standing out there. That's who I wanted to say that about. Okay? Somebody else. And an angel shows up and he says to her, you are highly favored. No wonder she's terrified. Gabriel encourages her by letting her know that the Lord is with her. That was in the verse. See it? The Lord is with you. He reminds her of that. This is the first time in Scripture that an angel shows reverence for a human being. She's just picked out of the crowd. That's what it feels like. As Mary soon learns, she is not the mother of grace. Rather, she's the recipient of grace. That's what she's going to find out. Mary's response in Luke one twenty nine. let's read that. Mary was greatly troubled at his words, I bet, and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. What's going to happen? When the Lord appears, often from a human perspective, good things don't happen. Ask Job. Ask Jonah. Ask Gideon. Ask Jeremiah. Ask Ezekiel. And it's like, oh, the Lord just appeared. She was greatly troubled. It's interesting because this word, greatly troubled, this verb is far stronger than Herod's response, which represents an irony in Scripture. She's more greatly perplexed by the presence of God than Herod was. Makes sense. She's a faithful one. What does this mean that the angels just showed up? So Gabriel reassures her a second time in verse 30. Angel of the Lord said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. He reassures her that she has found favor with God. So Mary, for reasons she cannot fathom, I'm guessing, found herself standing in God's grace and very vulnerable. Why is that? Allie. Come on up here, Allie. Meet one of our youngest teenagers. Okay, I get to say. So what's your name? Allie Confer. Allie Confer. And how old are you? Thirteen. Thirteen. Do you know that in the first century, the girls were typically engaged to be married. Their parents arranged for the wedding of the marriage at 12, 12 and a half. So you're about to be married. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> Furthermore, an angel would have appeared to Mary and she's about your age and says, guess what? You're about to get pregnant. Bring it on. My mom loves babies. <laughs> I'm not sure Mary said that. <laughs> but I love the response. Isn't that crazy at that age? Yeah. Well, you're not ready to have a child, are you? No. 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 Yeah. That's okay. I think your parents are ready for you to have a child. No, I don't think so. Can you imagine how scared she was? Yeah, I, if I if if it was me, I would be very scared. Yeah, and I don't think she knew what to do when the angel told her that. Who are you going to tell? What are you going to go to your friend and say? I'm about to get pregnant, and it's God. That would be. I wouldn't do that. It wouldn't work, would it? No. Would they laugh at you? Probably. <laughs> you are wonderful. I love you being. You love you being in our church. Thank you. That was just to give you a picture of how vulnerable she was. She's very young. She's very young. Normally, she would be expelled from Joseph's house at this point. 
That's what normally would happen. Uh, she has no place to turn except to God. Who's going to believe her? Is her fiancé even going to believe her? Um, by the way, this vulnerability stays with her throughout her entire life. They didn't believe her. Later on, the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish community, later on, they, um, they mock her. They mock Jesus. So they still didn't believe her. So God picked a very young, very vulnerable teenager to fulfill redemptive history. That says something about his confidence in his people. He did the same with Job. He's the most faithful man on the earth. Satan said, of course, you protect him. He goes, have at him. You'll see. So he placed all of redemptive history on the shoulders of this young woman. And she's in a culture that was dependent on men. Because once she was pregnant, she's no longer marriable under Jewish law. What's she going to do? What's Joseph going to do? So now just picture with me just for a moment. Joseph's thoughts. So Joseph just founds out. Mary just comes over. Says I'm pregnant. All he knows for sure is that it's not him. I wonder what he thought. Mary. Mary, how could you do this to me? How could you dishonor me, my family like this? Bring shame on us. But you don't understand, Joseph. God is the one that got me proud. Oh, yeah, right. Right. Can you imagine the thinking behind this? These two people in this, there's no secrets in a small town. Can't hide pregnancy. He's stuck. It's interesting that the Matthew account who brings in Joseph doesn't ever mention the, uh, the birth of Jesus. <clears throat> I think he's trying to get us to focus on what happened with the king, with the Messiah, to provide us a theological perspective. Who is Joseph? Who is he? I have a little short story here from Max Lucado. I love the way he describes it. Matthew describes Jesus' earthly father as a craftsman in Matthew 13. A small-town carpenter, he lives in Nazareth. A single camel map dot on the edge of boredom. It's an obscure little village. Is he the right choice? Doesn't God have better options than Joseph? An eloquent priest from Jerusalem, maybe? How about a scholar from the Pharisees? Why Joseph? Why him? A major part of the answer lies in his reputation. He gives it up for Jesus. Matthew one nineteen. Then Joseph, Mary's husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was reminded to put her away secretly. With the phrase, a just man, Matthew recognizes the status of Joseph. The people of Nazareth probably reviewed him as we might view an elder or a deacon, a class leader, a church leader. Something like that. 
Joseph likely took pride in his standing, but Mary's announcement jeopardized it. I'm pregnant, she says. In a shame and honor context, she just dishonored his family and him. Now what? His fiance is blemished, tainted. He's righteous and godly on the one hand. He has law. On the other hand, he has love. The law says stoner. Love says forgiver. Joseph is caught in the middle. Then comes the angel. Mary's growing belly gives no cause for concern, the angel says, but reason to rejoice. She has the Son of God in her womb. But who would believe it? What happens if Joseph makes the wrong decision? Mary has no choice, but Joseph does. He gets to choose. She doesn't. That's a tough spot to be in, isn't it? You found yourself there from time to time, have you? Maybe you find out you have cancer or some other serious illness. Maybe you found out a spouse has not been faithful to you. Who knows? But some of you know what it's like to be in a place and vulnerable of which you had no control or say. And that's where she finds herself. But he has a choice. What this story tells us is one of the many, many stories. This is what I love about the Bible, the biblical story, is that when you look at redemptive history, is that occasionally it goes up along the edge, right here, the edge of the cliff, and we wonder what's going to happen. Does God intervene? So if Joseph does the wrong thing, then the history of the Messiah is jeopardized right here. So that that's the question. So the very first surprise that comes in this story is that Mary is already pledged to be married when she is found to be pregnant, Matthew one eighteen. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they had come together, before they consummated the marriage, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. That clue is very important because this sets the whole stage for who Joseph is. Because he lives in an age where she's been unfaithful and that tarnishes his family, his shame and honor. So he's kind of stuck. Engagement in the first century is very different than today. It was a legally binding contract. You see, her father would have gone and paid, I mean, his father would have gone and paid the bride price Uh, He paid for her. So there's a legally binding contract and everybody knew it. And so the only option uh, was divorce. That's the way you could break the legal contract. That's the way it used to be in our country, by the way, when I was a young man. Is that marriage was considered a legally binding contract. I wish it still was. This is great. He finds himself... In trouble. Surprise number two is that very thing. He's now faced with a dilemma, Matthew one nineteen. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. It's not like today you just walk down to the courts and get a divorce. Nobody knows unless you happen to tell them. That's not the way it was at all. Women were typically arranged in marriage around 12, so Mary was very vulnerable. That's why I brought Allie up here. So you had a picture of what it would have been like. Couples in Jewish society at this time were allowed very little privacy before the marriage day. They probably didn't even know each other very well. Okay? 
That was very common that they kept them apart until the day of marriage. It's interesting, uh, teaching in India and Nepal, a lot of the marriages there are uh, arranged. One of my students um, came to class and has a new wife. Uh, it's just a very different world than ours. It was all arranged by his parents. One of my friends was in seminary from India. Halfway through seminary, his dad called him, <clears throat> called him and said, Okay, I arranged the con- I arranged the marriage for you. Come home. Okay. Flew home, got married. He met his wife. Both these men met their wife on their wedding day. That was the first time they met. It's a very different world than ours, isn't it? So they probably didn't even know, know each other very well. So that raises several questions. Why would Joseph believe Mary? Why would he believe her? Or let's turn the question around. Why could Mary trust Joseph? That's why that little phrase that he was a righteous man becomes so important in this journey. But you can see how vulnerable they were at this point in time. Jewish law demanded that a husband expose his wife through public trial when she offended him or shamed him through impropriety or infidelity. It was a public trial. The Old Testament sets up the boundaries for how to determine if, in fact, she was a virgin or not. The Old Testament gives those rules. And so that's what Jewish law required. You had to expose her publicly. That's how you protected your own honor, was to show that she was the one. Okay, well, how's he going to do that? (laughs) Joseph was stuck. He was required by the law to divorce his wife, but he didn't want to publicly disgrace her through a public trial. So according to the Jewish tradition, he had one more option. He had the option of divorcing her rather than a public trial. He could do it privately in front of two witnesses rather than the entire town. He's not interested in shaming her, but he still has a dilemma because even to divorce her uh, without a public trial would allow the shame to be stuck to his family name. But he's willing to go through that. This sets up stage number three. Surprise number three. God waited until after Joseph had considered all this before intervening. After he had considered this. After. See that? So God is very patient and allows him to go through all of the options to test his own faith and to decide what's the most righteous thing to do in this situation. By the way, that's the decision that Church leaders face, you face it. When you, have, when you have options, neither one of which are good, what's the most righteous or redemptive thing to do? Once he made that decision, here's what happened. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now remember, she's the only one that's told you that she's pregnant, and is not another man. This is when the angel comes. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. This is out of Isaiah. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew wants us to understand the surprise here. Because he said, after he considered this, and and we don't usually translate this in English, but there's this wonderful little Greek word. You see it in the old King James. After he considered this, behold. That makes you as a reader say, okay, 
what's coming. After he had considered this, guess what? An angel appeared. After he had reasoned it through. He was to name his son Jesus. God saved. The quest for the son has come to an end. Thousands of years of waiting, and here it is. Right here. That's the story of Christmas. His name represented the culmination of the quest and the prayers of countless generations of Jews who longed for the return of the Messiah to come and reverse what had happened with Adam and Eve. It finally happened. He's to be called Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. So this story is packed with surprise if you're hearing it for the first time in that culture. Everything about this story goes against what the culture was anticipating, looking forward to, expecting. Greek people are never born in a feeding trough. They're certainly never born in an obscure village. That doesn't happen. But that's what God chose. So what do we make of all this? I would suggest something very simple. Um, both Luke and Matthew, by the way they tell the story, they invite us to learn from both Mary and Joseph. There's some very valuable things here that stand out. Number one is that they both demonstrated fidelity and, and faithfulness. The very nature of faithfulness is you do what's right, even though you can't see the outcome. Those of you that have had cancer, those of you that have been sick, or you've been placed in a vulnerable position, and you only have a couple of options, you can walk away. I'll be honest with you, when my first wife died, I was tempted to just trash the whole thing and move and leave. I'd had enough, but I didn't. And so both of them demonstrate faithfulness when they've been placed in a highly vulnerable situation, which they never really recovered from. People never really believed it. That's why the Pharisees mocked them later on. They both demonstrated discipline in their personal and intimate relationship. Joseph didn't consummate the marriage until after Jesus was born, even though he's married. We could use a little more of that in our society today. Something important there. They both placed, this is where I want to end up, they both placed God's honor above their own. That's the key to faithfulness. If you could see the outcome, it wouldn't be faith. That's the very definition of faith. The essence of things unseen, Hebrews tells us. The very nature of faith is that we put one foot in front of the other because down inside, we believe it to be true. Or as Hebrews 11 said, all these people of faith, they died without ever seeing the promise that they believed in. One day they will. So this story is not simply a story. It's not simply a story of two young people falling in love, one getting pregnant. It doesn't work that way. This is a story that in every angle, every way you can look at it, is designed to contrast the truth with the world's perception. Great people are not born on the seven hills of Rome. No, great people, the greatest, are born in the least likely places. Right here. Billy Graham once talked about, he's not anything important. The person that led him to the Lord is important. They don't even know who that is. 
And that's true. That's true. That's what this story teaches us. That the people that are the greatest are not the world's vision of who's the greatest. They're sitting right here. That's you. We can laugh and joke with you about being sheep, but the honest truth is you are God's, you are God's handiwork, Paul tells us. You are the ones through which he chose to reveal the kingdom and his glory. Isn't that amazing? It's you. That's you. That's who great people are. So he chose this very young, vulnerable woman and a young man who both had to practice faith. And they did, just like you do. Isn't the Bible incredible? The stories. Father, thank you for surprising us. Thank you for doing it in a way that gives us hope. Because most of us in this room don't, won't ever be popular, famous, wealthy, not the way the world describes it. And yet you think we are wonderful. And you think we're important enough that you place us in very vulnerable spots, but then in spots where we get to proclaim your glory to our friends so that they can see you. Thank you for your goodness. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come take the offering. Thank you. Thank you for being generous. Next, uh, next, uh, early next year, we'll put a financial update in the bulletin so you can see where we are. But you'll see that God is caring for our church and he's doing it through you. You're a very generous church. Thank you for taking good care of us. There were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And many of you have listened to the Messiah? Heard the Messiah? Oh, just a few of you. Oh, that saddens me. It's one of the most incredible pieces ever written. A, a 
Honda was an incredible theologian. You learn all about the story of Isaiah in there. It's quite long. I listen to it every day during Advent. Drives my wife crazy. We're still married. And I have it playing in my office all the time I'm in here working in the background. The story is just remarkable as he tells it. And he sat down and wrote it from start to finish. Just wrote the whole thing. It's quite long, several hours actually. It's worth listening to. You should go back and listen to it. We come to communion, the time when we together celebrate the goodness of God and what he's done for us. I'd like to invite some of you to come up and get the bread and the cup ready for us. You know, I need four teams up here. And maybe some of you to come up and either pray with people or just greet them. Um, Every one of you loves to be greeted. It's so delightful. So come on up and get the bread and the cup ready. The the story of uh, communion, the Passover, Jesus' last night, gives us a clue about vulnerability. On the night that he was betrayed, there it is, that phrase, that tells us so much about this story. This is vulnerability. That's what it is at its finest. Christ, I believe, my own interpretation of scriptures and my own theology says that that Christ himself uh, made himself vulnerable in that uh, everything he did, he did under the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything. Just like we have to do. Same way we do it. That's how he did it. That's why Hebrews said he's been tempted in every way just as we are. If he could exercise his divine prerogative of knowledge or omniscience, then he wouldn't be like us. He didn't do that. He lived under the power of the Holy Spirit, just like we have to do. That means that going into this final night, he asked his father to take the cup away if he was willing. And so vulnerability, being on the cross. And that's the story of Mary and Joseph. That's the story of Jonah. That's the story of Moses going before Pharaoh. Countless other biblical characters, which you know, they're all experiencing the same kind of thing. Vulnerability. Having to rely on the Lord to rescue them. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When you come forward, somebody's going to say, this is the body of Christ given for you. After supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. When you come forward, somebody's going to say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you, for you, each of you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so that's what Emmanuel means, God with us. When he says, do this in remembrance of me, what he's saying is, I remembered my promise. I came back for you. I remembered it. Therefore, be faithful and do this for me. That's what communion is all about. Father, thank you for sending us your son. Thank you. Thank you for not forgetting us but being willing to surprise us by the way you sent him so that we might enjoy with you. Your son's name, amen. That's our testimony. If that's yours, we invite you to come forward and enjoy communion with us.
Remember, this is um, <clears throat> this is a time of the year when people are hoping for something better. Never met a person that said, "This is Nirvana." You're looking at it. Hasn't happened. It's innate in us that there's something better than this, and we have, as Peter said, the words of life. And so, make yourself vulnerable. Tell your neighbors if you're looking for a place to worship, come to our candlelight service doesn't cost anything to do that. I've been telling people in Starbucks, all over the place, Sunshine Cafe, everywhere. And uh, people will listen. This is the time of the year when they will listen. And I look forward to seeing you Tuesday night. It'll be full. In the meantime, hope you enjoy the peace of Christ this week. And enjoy the Christmas story. Go in peace. <laughs>